Hi, I'm R.A. Salvatore, Bob Salvatore. Been writing fantasy books for 25 years now and going strong, and you're listening to Genretainment. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Genretainment over here on SciFiPulseRadio.com. We're your hosts, Marks. And Julie. And Genretainment is where we talk about what's happening in the world of film, TV, and web series. We give you interviews with writers, directors, producers, and actors in both independent and not-so-independent creations. And for today's show, we're chatting with Steve Kinson and John Lighthouser, the gaming-designing minds from Green Ronin, which are behind such hit role-playing games as Mutants and Masterminds, woohoo, and DC Adventures. Mm-hmm. Plus, we have a bonus interview with Eric Balfour, who plays Duke on the Sci-Fi Channel TV series Haven, which just premiered its fourth season. Yeah. Now, Mutants and Masterminds is a fun superhero role-playing game that has been around for years and is currently on its third edition. It's also the game rules that power the DC Adventures game, which is set in the DC Comics universe with characters like Superman, Batman, Flash, Wonder Woman, Green Arrow, and countless others. Many you may have known. heard of those. Yeah, just maybe. Possibly. Maybe. I hear they're going to catch on. (laughs) Now we learn about their game design backgrounds, how the games were created, and what they have planned for the future. Now before we get started with our first interview, we do want to point out that the music you just heard at the beginning of the show is a snippet from the theme song for our web series, Reality on Demand. It's a song composed and performed by our friend T. Sean Hardy, and you can find our web series at realityondemandseries.com. Now let's get started with our featured interview with the creators of Mutants and Masterminds and DC Adventures. Listen to Entertainment, and today we're speaking with two of the masterminds behind the role-playing game publisher Green Ronin. They have created or worked on many popular games, including Mutants and Masterminds and DC Adventures. And their secret identities are John Lighthouser and Steve Kinson. So, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Great to be here. Okay, well, first off, let's talk a little bit about how you guys first got involved in creating role-playing games. John, you want to go first, or shall I? Uh, go right ahead. Okay. So this is Steve for folks who are uh, keeping track at home. And I got uh, I first got involved in role playing games as a uh, as a professional designer back in the mid 90s when I started freelancing. And I initially started writing <clears throat> for various existing games. Uh, I particularly started working out for Fasa Corporation. And I did uh, a lot of stuff for Shadowrun and their Earth Dawn game later on. And some years later, uh, I designed a superhero setting that would basically become the foundation for what uh, was uh, Freedom City. And the original plans to publish it fell through. And so I continued to sort of develop the setting on my own uh, in my own time. And... I was talking with Chris Premus, who's the president of Green Ronin. One point, we had worked together on a few uh, smaller freelance projects. That I had this, you know, cool setting, and you know, nothing to do with it basically, because there were no uh, superhero games around in print at the time for me to pitch it to a publisher. And this was in the heyday of the big D20 open game license uh, explosion, following the uh, the publication of the third edition of Dungeons and Dragons. So Chris said, well, 
uh, let me take a look at it. And he did, and he liked it. And he said, I'll tell you what, if you want to design a superhero game to go with it, we'll do a two-book deal. We'll publish the core book for the game, and we'll publish this setting book, and we'll see you know, how the whole thing does. So, uh, you know, as they say, I, I did, and, and the rest was history. I, I designed the first edition of Mutants and Masterminds, um, and we'll see, you know, turned into, you know, 10 years later. We're in the third edition of the game, and we've done, you know, a couple of dozen different source books for it. So it turned out pretty well. <laughs> Great. And John? Let's see, you graduated college, started working at a comic book store, then moved up to the distribution company, which was Capital City Distribution, which still existed back then in the early mid-90s. And then when I was working there, I was the games and novelties product manager. So I dealt with a lot of people, including Chris Primus, uh, when he was running his old Ronin publishing company. And then... Let's see, years later, I had moved on to a couple of different companies. I started a company, uh, then started working at WizKids and worked as the game designer on HeroClix and also did work on things like um, MechWarrior and Mage Knight and a couple other games. Uh, kind of herded the game Suro through production to actually get it made. And then after uh, I left WizKids, in fact, I'm trying to think. I, I was already doing some freelance work for yeah. Green Ronin. Yep. Uh, and I think that started at the tail end of first edition, beginning of second edition. Mm-hmm. And yeah, did did a few books for second edition. And then in 2008, I think it was, Steve? Um, yes. Steve wanted to take a step back from doing designing and developing at the same time. So Chris mm-hmm. Premis came to me and said, hey, do you want to be a developer for Mutants and Masterminds? And I said, yes, absolutely. Uh, and so I've been doing that now for five years. Fantastic. We're going to mainly talk about Means and Masterminds and DC Adventures mm-hmm. is pretty heavily. And you know, Means and Masterminds definitely is one of my favorite games. And it's Julie's. Yes, I'm, I'm not as avid a gamer as, you know, as Marx's is and a lot of our, our friends. But because I, I, I can get into sometimes the worlds a little bit like D&D, but I never really connect with or care that much about my character once it's made up, but mm-hmm. I created a fantastic character for Mutants and Masterminds, and I'm so attached to her that I can't even bring myself. <laughs> that our role playing group wanted to go back to some other game, and I have absolutely no interest right now in going back and playing <laughs> that because I'm like, no, <clears throat> I I my I want to play this character because it your your uh your system really lends itself well to creating really well-rounded interesting characters that you end up caring about a lot thank you that's very good to hear that's that's definitely one of the the, one of the things we had in mind yeah i was going to ask if that's um was that definitely something that you had thought maybe was lacking in some of the other gaming systems that you just sort of get a bland character that they can be traded for one or the other that's always been my impression with so many systems well game systems have uh, a lot of different priorities to them and Superhero games, to one degree or another, the superhero comics have a have a very big kind of soap opera element to them. You know, there's there's all of the characters' internal dialogue and all of their their interactions and all of their subplots and those sorts of things. So we wanted that to be reflected fairly strongly, and so Mutants and Masterminds, as as it's progressed 
has tried to bring that element out more and more in the uh, the way the hero point uh, mechanics work in terms of, of using the complications to, to help define and the motivations to help define characters and give them a mechanical element to the way those, you know, sort of that personal quality is developed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So are, for either one of you, are there any characters that you've created in the course of, of doing these gaming systems that you just... <laughs> For you, or maybe a personal favorite, or stand above the rest, or you just have a real affection for that you've created yourselves. Oh, for sure. I, I yeah. think Steve and I probably both have rafts of characters that we love. <laughs> yeah, I think I think Kid Robot is one of John's favorites. Yeah, Kid Robot is pretty good. I mean, specifically talking about characters created for MNM by Steve or I, there are a lot of villains, and there are not so many heroes. Well, I guess that's not true of. Uh, Oh, Freedom City. City, which has lots and lots of heroes. Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, even, you know, player characters, uh, and some of these obviously go back, unfortunately, decades. But, uh, you know, there I have characters just like everybody that are fantastic. And very few of them have actually made it into M&M because I feel like they are mine. Mm-hmm. But they're... Uh, yeah, I think it's. I, I think that sort of thing is kind of unavoidable that you come up with some really good ideas, and you know, almost all of the Sentinels characters, which were the the free characters that we had that we released online for people to use for the third edition. I think each of those has something that I really like in them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Yeah, a lot of people actually ask if uh, the Mutants and Masterminds setting has a lot of you know our personal campaigns built into it and the funny thing is that uh, it's actually relatively little as far as that goes Hmm. you know a lot of people thought that freedom city was this campaign world that um, like ed greenwood's forgotten realms that i had been you know playing in for for years and years and that uh that was largely untrue i i created a lot of, of freedom city as a sort of a set piece uh, and a lot of it ended up being used in play, but like characters like the Freedom League and characters like the Sentinels weren't conceived of as anybody's player characters. Okay. To uh, kind of go along with what Julie said, you know, I'm a more experienced gamer, but I do really enjoy Means Masterminds. Definitely one of my favorite game systems. Even though Face Rip, oh Face Rip system of the Marvel Universe yeah. has special <laughs> place. <laughs> in <our> <laughs> Absolutely. I don't think you will find anyone on this podcast who does not love that system. So. <laughs> no. No. As a matter, as a matter of fact, when uh, Green Ronin put out their hundred best uh, book talking about tabletop games of all kinds, um, Marvel Superheroes was the was the one one game I absolutely wanted to write about. So I actually wrote an essay about why it is one of the greatest superhero games ever. <laughs> That's cool. Well, now you talked about how Mutants Mastermind started out whenever you created that setting. I'm curious, when you created the setting originally, was it going to be that type of rule system? Or whenever you, you talked to, uh, whenever you're going to go with that company, that they suggested it would be an OGL or D20-ish type game? You know, Did that, did that happen? Mm-hmm. You mean the initial plan, publishing plans for the setting? Exactly, yes. Uh, initially, it was going to be a setting for champions, actually. Oh really? Okay. Yeah. Hmm. As a matter of fact, I, in fact, I still have um, some of the early draft champion stats for some of the characters that ended up in the book. 
Oh. <laughs> so. Interesting. That is. What kind of challenge was it trying to create an OGL game uh, at that time? Mostly OGL was D20. Uh, mm-hmm. Trying to create a superhero game out of it because, you know, that was a pretty big leap compared to what we'd had at that point. Yeah, it, well, it, it wasn't, it wasn't in some regards. Um, the Conceptually, the, the biggest challenge was largely dealing with hit points and combat and issues over advancement. Um, because I was looking at the you know the core OGL system and D and D fantasy you know is a particular type of genre and it's all about the you know sort of rapid progression of these you know sort of nobody heroes you know who you know do well and go on all of these various quests and accumulate power and knowledge and ability and go you know from first to whatever level. And the just the, like superheroes do, just right? like superheroes do, exactly. <laughs> um, we all remember when you know Spider Man, Superman was first level and he was only jumping over buildings. And, yes, you know, uh, he used only leap tall buildings, hadn't unlocked his heat vision ability yet. Yeah, no. you know, all of that. Yeah, because he used to only leap tall buildings that. in a single bounce. Um, I ended up looking at you know how I could look at certain elements of the game in different ways you know, how I could have something that was like the level system. But I said, well, what are levels about in comic books? And, you know, it, it came to the idea of, well, you're, you're always usually talking about power level of a particular character. And you say, you know, oh, this guy is a very high power level character. This guy's, you know, not a very high power level character. And I said, okay, well, that's that's a way we can use the level mechanic to to talk about things in superhero terms. And likewise, I looked at the um, hit point mechanic in the in the core OGL system, and it was it was problematic just because of the the sheer you know sort of damage inflation you deal with. Uh, you know, I played a lot of champions, and you know there was just a a thing about having to roll you know fifteen six sided dice and add them all up. And, yeah. You know, count them in two different ways. I'm a little math um, challenged, so that gives it that's how I, yeah. That's how I learned math growing up. <laughs> sure. <laughs> um, you know, so I was like, is there, you know, a, so so we don't have to duplicate that because you know we've already got a game that does that just fine. You know, is there another way we can we can look at how to handle damage? And I I looked at how pretty much every other hazard, but you know, direct damage was handled in the game. And that's where saving throws came in. And the idea of, well, why can't we just make, you know, resisting damage, another kind of saving throw. And we got the, what evolved into the resistance check defense system in third edition of mutants and masterminds, where basically everything is, is a resistance check and the degree to which you succeed or fail really determines what happens. And that allowed us to, to really shorthand a lot of a really broad range of effects without having to, you know, say, okay, and now you're going to roll, you know, 18 dice and add them all up. And, Which does know, just... tend to slow down the uh, game a little yeah. bit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Not that Hero System was known for that at all. No. Yeah. No. <laughs> Not at all. Yeah, because that can get, I mean, that gets awfully cumbersome because, you know, you 
especially when it's supposed to be something action packed and then it's like, okay. And then I do, and then each person is taking several minutes and rolling a bunch of different things. And then next thing you know, it's like, you know, more than a half hour before it gets back around to you. Right. And uh, I'm, I'm well known for actually, if it goes very late and we would play those gaming systems, I would doze off and they'd have to wake me up (laughs) and they go, okay, he threw a punch. He got knocked down. Da da da. Your turn. And I go, okay, I do this. And yeah. then it would be another half hour more, and I'd be asleep, you know. <laughs> yeah, now, and now, even if people stay awake, we have uh, tablets and iPads to thank for that same activity. Yeah. <laughs> okay, what's happening? Yeah. Right. No, so oh, we, we sorry, I've been on Facebook school. for like twenty minutes. Yeah. yeah. We kicked it old we, school. We would do it. We, we rule that out on the table. No, no. Uh, yeah. Smartphones well, because we used to do like it would be late, kind of going late into the night, and then then. You know, there was a slow game, and I would bake brownies, and you get a sugar crash. It was just a bad combination. <laughs> <laughs> you just don't, you can't keep doing that. <laughs> yeah. I'm curious, whenever I try to get other gamers to play Means Masterminds, who might be Pathfinder or, or D&D, mm-hmm. uh, they get, well, one of the main things that always bugs them at first is the no hit points. And I'm curious, whenever Means Masterminds first came out, was there any kind of pushback from gamers that, that you saw? There was a little. Um, honestly, I think that we we kind of set ourselves up in some regards because I'm I'm such a, a hopeless system tinkerer um, that you know I have a tendency to if if it were left totally up to me, you know nothing I ever worked on would ever be published because <laughs> you know I would I would keep working on it forever. Well, um, art's never and, finished, just abandoned. Yeah, you know, so I would just continue revising it. And you know, adding on things and bolting stuff onto it. So what ended up happening, uh, because I second guess myself a lot uh, in those regards, is uh, I ended up putting a sort of optional section in the very first edition of the game that basically was, well, if you really want to do hit points, here's how you can do it. Um, and it was kind of a fast and dirty, you know, conversion system. Mm-hmm. Um, and some people really latched onto that. Um, and you know, I, I pretty much immediately regretted doing it, um, <laughs> uh, because, you know, it was, well, but what about this? And, you know, how can this hit point thing be expanded and supported? And I'm like, no, it's not going to be, I'm never doing that. <laughs> you know, you know, we, we just totally, by, by the second edition of the game, we just jettisoned that and you know, pretended it never existed. <laughs> You know, and I think that in some ways we would have been smarter to just make a clean break rather than try and, you know, have this sort of apologia for hit points in the game. Um, Sorry, Steve. I I was going to say one of the other things that we've also found, and I think Chris is the one who pointed this out. Maybe it was you, Steve. Mm. Uh, Sort of the farther we move away from the D20 origins of the system, the Mm -hmm. more people seem to like the game for superheroes. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. And it has moved away more and more each edition. I mean, that's another question I was going to ask was about third edition. Mm-hmm. What prompted doing third edition? And, and it also, it has a lot of changes that, that move it away from OGL, a lot of terminology changes. Mm-hmm. You know, what was the thought behind that? And I'm curious, yeah. along the same lines, was that inspired by DC Ventures or, what, or did you even have that license yet? I was just going to say, yeah, two, two things prompted <laughs> third edition. One was DC because we were we were in a long, long negotiating process 
uh, with DC behind the scenes before anything ever got announced. And you mean these things of, don't happen overnight? Yeah, strangely <laughs> enough, these licensing deals do not happen overnight. And uh, one of the things that DC wanted was a standalone game. They were not crazy, and we we went back and forth on a number of details. But one of the things DC was not crazy about was the idea of a DC source book to an existing game. Uh, they were okay with us using the OGL mechanics, but they wanted a DC branded thing. So that meant, at the very least, we were going to be producing a new core rulebook of some kind. The other thing that prompted the third edition was the fourth edition of D and D which kind of changed the OGL map in terms of, uh, you know, where products were and what the, the, what the overall importance of what the, the open game license meant uh, for a lot of stuff. You know, it was pretty clear at that point that Mutants and Masterminds had its, had its own niche and its own identity, and it wasn't really looking to be, you know, beyond a lot of its core mechanics, which haven't changed at all. It wasn't really looking to, to retain a lot of the same vocabulary as, uh, you know, third edition D&D, which was long gone by that point. So, you know, it was it was an opportunity to scrub out some of the, you know, sort of D&Disms, you know, of it. You know, so you don't have superheroes with wisdom scores. And, yeah. <laughs> yeah, wisdom, that word always bugged me outside, you know, of, outside of Dungeons Dragons. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I found of, some of that kind of confusing the way it was the way the what it was called because that was just so entrenched and that's how it always was but it didn't right. e- the the terms didn't evolve with how they were used you know and yeah. and yeah. so sometimes it just you know it would seem a little silly now how's it been working with DC since they're part of you know yeah. Warner Brothers since John's been doing most of that yeah they've they've actually been uh, we're kind of done working with them now other than writing them checks. Oh, good. You can but, tell us the truth in that. No, I was going to say, what do you yeah. think they're going to say? <laughs> they suck. But no, they, they actually were really good. And it, yeah. it, this license is not an easy one for them because as opposed to approving a statue or a miniature or a T-shirt or underwear with Wonder Woman or Superman or Batman or whatever, um, yeah. our books are books and they require a lot of reading and checking to make sure things are all right so uh it was i mean we were all very we all knew from the beginning that it was going to be a lot of work for them and they knew that too which is why the license was a limited term thing so it was limited to four books but yeah they were great to work with and you know we would give them a heads up of hey we've got this book it's 230 pages and it's coming your way soon and it's you know 7 800 words a page so get ready <laughs> uh, and you know i think they appreciated the heads up it didn't really change yeah. what they had to do once they got it but you know they they turned them around surprisingly quickly and yeah. uh got stuff back to us and you know in one one or two cases it certainly slowed us down but hey it's their product it's their world it's their everything so final say yeah they get final say and we just had to make the tweaks we needed to make and then it was good to go so uh i mean overall the it was great it was just fine and dc was was in some regards you know amazing you know considering that they went through a massive corporate reorganization and completely relaunched their entire comics line during the time that they were working yeah. with us. Yeah. yeah. You know, so, I mean, their licensing department 
turned over probably a couple of times. Uh, speaking of the changes at DC. Yeah, I was curious if that was, I mean, that's an obvious question. Is Was it frustrating a little bit working with DC at the time whenever they did that reboot? Was it, Did you have to decide, the new are 52. we going to try to do New 52? Are we going to stick with the classic? I, mean, was I, that... do, I, I don't think there was really any question at that point. We had already put out Hero, I was going to say Hero's Handbook and Volume 1 was out at that point, wasn't it, John? I think so, yeah. So, I mean, we were already halfway in, trying to change midstream <laughs> to adapt to DC's new continuity, which we knew absolutely nothing about. Yeah. Um, and, you know, which very upfront DC could not answer pretty much any questions about <laughs> because there were tons of things that had not been established yet. Yeah. There's there was just really no question of even trying. Yeah. You know. Plus they um specifically requested or I think they were on board when we suggested it, it was before I was with the company. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um that we kind of take a an iconic approach to the characters. So Superman is Superman is Superman right. no matter where he appears. And so that was kind of the approach that we took to it, and the Superman origin is basically the same. Mm-hmm. Um his powers are basically the same, so we just kind of presented yeah. the character in a fashion that was as universal as possible. Uh, and so even though they were rebooting to the new 52, uh, at least in theory, that shouldn't really have a huge impact on what the character is like. Mm-hmm. That's true. And we we actually were fortunate in the regards that we were packing so much material into the DC books that we were really able to ask the writers to really focus on the essentials and not get, and you know, there's a tendency and I'm, I'm a comic book geek and, you know, pretty much everyone we worked with is a huge comic book geek. There's a tendency to want to dive into the minutia of it. And, you know, we really had to dial that back to a certain degree and say, no, just like really, you know, we don't need to know what the address of Clark Kent's apartment is. <laughs> you know, I'm sure you know it, you know, but like really like the super essentials, you know, like it was called Krypton. It blew up, <laughs> you know, for some reason he's highly allergic to any, any of the green rocks from his home world. Yeah. You know, right. um, hit hit the high points, you know. Um, that really doesn't make sense. I don't know. We have to take antihistamines. I don't, yeah, way. I'm allergic to the, my home. That's <laughs> right. Never mind. Whenever <laughs> you work with a licensed company like that, because licensed games, I mean, they're, they're mega popular. Star Wars being one of the biggest. Mm-hmm. You know, I always wonder how difficult it is to, to work with them or what the process is to work with them. Because I mean, once you send that book to them, what kind of feedback do you get? Do they go – are they picking on certain – details are they picking on do they say it's beautiful darling just uh, change these thousand points do they ever go i doubt they do because i'm sure they're not gamers but they ever go like well this is this superman's just way too strong in this book <laughs> i mean yeah they don't they don't do that second thing um but the, the game design stuff they pretty much leave to us yeah um, well and i say pretty much they completely leave to us and uh the um it's just the background details and things like that that they read through and make sure that that it's yeah. correct okay. um and really most of that you know as steve was saying all the people we hired were big comic geeks so they have lots of history and lots of knowledge for mm-hmm. for these different characters and so they go through and you know mm-hmm. find the resources that they can actually then refer back to and say this is where i'm getting this information and 
Um, in some cases, it's just, I just know this from reading comics, but uh, I know some other writers were, well, let's just say they were hard pressed to cut down a description of a character to, you know, 500 to 600 words yes. and, uh, and just let it go at that. So, yes, <laughs> that would be tough, especially for it Batman. Was, it, was, it was, it was painful for some people. It mm-hmm. really was. <laughs> When you get so attached and you're like, yes, but this detail is very important to understand yes. their motivation for the, you know, and. Yeah, and, nope, and sorry. Yeah, everyone's yeah, so emotionally attached. Yeah, and, and what's funny is if I were to do this license over, uh, I would limit the words on every character even, even more. more. Like I would yeah. probably say if we yeah. have two to three hundred words a character, that's probably yeah. enough. Oh, yeah. wow. Well, especially for, you know, and, and this was another one we had a, a challenge with for a lot of characters, especially the really big ones, was when you finish writing their origin story, summarizing their origin story, stop. Yeah. You know, because some people would be like summarizing their character's entire career. And it's like, no, mm. get, to, get to the point where they first put on the costume and then stop. Yeah. <laughs> You're done. <laughs> You know, and I well, there was a great deal of editorializing that in the first drafts as well. Yes, yeah. Then you can kind of like now this character is the most awesome because <laughs> actually we, we we did pretty good at, at that overall. I have to say well, we good. we we had some occasional game system arguments about that, but um, we I think we handled those mostly pretty well. And you can kind of get around it too, because a lot of superhero characters, what you would have in their bios after their origin story would be their interactions with supervillains or mm-hmm. other heroes. Yeah. So you can kind of cover that a little bit in their bios. Yeah. Yes, indeed. So, so I mean, did we? Did, was there like big arguments about like who can beat who? I mean, like, or how, <laughs> what power? I know, like, every time I have a friend who looks at the books, they're always like. What Batman's PL whatever level or you know? Oh yeah. <laughs> Versus well, <laughs> you can you can see that we I mean you know we're we're gamers ourselves we're we're comic book fans so you know we knew going in that by definition there's no way you can you can quantify you know these beloved characters who are you know exist in a fictional universe where they have whatever abilities the writers need them to have mm-hmm. at any given time, especially ones that have these 70 year history, publishing histories to them and again, get it right in everybody's book. Mm-hmm. You know, we knew for an absolute fact, you know, so that's why all the character books start out with this little sidebar that basically says, so you think this character is wrong. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, we know. Because it's going to happen, and all we can say is, if you think we got it wrong, then do it the way you think it works. <laughs> it's just our interpretation. Yeah, you know. But yeah, it happens. Now, another cool thing about getting a license is that you can use a lot of the artwork of of the comic books. I was wondering how that process works. Do they give you like a collection of pictures that you can use, or do you sit? Just pictures. I mean, how's that whole process kind of work out and for you to do the layouts? John and our art director actually worked out a great idea with this process. I'll let him tell you about it, though. Yeah, it was it was actually just the opposite of what you suggest. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> That's why they snickered. <laughs> they said, they said you can use any art from about two thousand and onward because it's all digital. They they have it archived for the most part. 
Note um, that includes anything DC has republished yep, during anything that time. that's been reprinted in the last 10, well, 13 years now. So, but we had to find the art and we had to give them the page reference. I'm sure, I'm sorry, the, the book it appeared in, the issue, the page reference without ads. And the panel number. But, well, not the panel number. It just needed to be on the page and then it had to be <laughs> described well enough that they knew what we wanted. Yeah. Um, along with the writer of that issue, the comic, the artist or artists for that issue. And I know there was more information, but it was... It was a little crazy, the information we had to find. So instead of doing that... <laughs> we, that's almost... Uh, that's like a Herculean Yeah, now imagine, now imagine having to do that for 200 plus... Yeah, six, 600 characters mm. over the life of the line. It was... Right. Quite a, uh, so I said, hey, what if we go to our wonderful, fantastic fans and say, if you have a piece of art that you think would be awesome for this character... Post, post the image and this information. Oh, and we also had to give them a, a shot of the image. Um, post that image along with all this information, and I will collect it all, and we will use those as much as we can to present the character in the book. Oh, that's right. brilliant. And so we had, I mean, and there were, I, I want to say less than a dozen, but I don't want to short anybody, mm -hmm. uh, but less than about a dozen people on our forums who really really stepped up and provided yeah. us a ton of fantastic artwork um yeah. like really great they references with, they came up with some great suggestions yeah i mean it was really and super useful and time saving for us i mean these books would have been much much later if we hadn't had them collecting some of that art for us because it, it was just so useful to us well yeah and that's kind of like you're creating these books for your target audience but when it comes to gamers and sort of geeks in general, uh, you know, they're also tend to be the experts. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's, it's a really great resource being able to, you know, gather that online because I think fandom in, in the geek world, particularly in role playing, it is a bit different than uh, fandoms for, for other more mainstream stuff. And that, you know, you're basically catering to people who, know as much and possibly more than you do about the subject. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. It's actually Absolutely. brilliant marketing, too, because you're kind of crowdsourcing and they're all going to be more excited about the product when it comes out. Yeah. So. Yeah. Win, 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 win. <laughs> yeah, it, it turned out really great and people were super helpful about it. It was really amazing, the support we got from everybody, even if they didn't really consider it support, that's exactly what it was. <laughs> yeah. So this would be the end of the DC line then the the fourth book right yep the universe book was the fourth book and that's the the last of the line so when can we accept marvel because then it'd be perfect <laughs> <laughs> they can't talk just, about it they're in talks right now just wait for our announcement at gen con <laughs> yeah. if it happens you heard it here first people <laughs> I'm not. I'm not saying which Gen Con it's going to be at. Though. Oh no! Oh. Wait a minute. This Gen because Con we haven't even started here. talking to Marvel. So. <laughs> Another license you guys have that was exciting for me was Wild Cards because I'm a big mm -hmm. fan of the the series yes. of books. And we we still have we that do. license. Actually. We still do. Yeah. Yeah. Can you explain a little bit how you guys picked up that license and how that process has been? Uh, we ended up getting the wild cards license um, because we were 
talking to George Martin about the Song of, Song of Ice and Fire license, which had become available. And we sat down with uh, George at New York Comic Con and uh, were having a, a discussion about licensing. And he mentioned that the, the wildcard license was also available. And I'm a big fan of the the wildcards books. I you know started reading them when they first started coming out. And I was very pleased to hear at that time that they were in the process of, of relaunching and doing a new series. So we we thought that it would be a great fit for Mutants and Masterminds. It would be a cool opportunity to do that. And um, we were sort of able to, you know, pitch ourselves as a one-stop shop for, you know, George's licenses in that regard. And uh, we were able to arrange it to do both Wild Cards and uh, Song of Ice and Fire. So that worked out particularly well in that regard. And it, and it was a great opportunity to, to work on the property. Yeah, and then you got the Game of Thrones show that helped your the other... Yeah, then the, the <laughs> show. I've heard of that, was, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> They need to have a wild cards TV show. I think that would be really great. They're in negotiations for a movie, actually. I can say that because it's been largely talked about already. Yeah, and it, was it a movie or a TV show? That's the part I uh, keep... Or, yeah, I'm not, not sure if it's, a, if it's a movie or a TV series, but they're, <laughs> they're in negotiations to actually bring wild cards to the screen. So. I think it would be, it'd be good either way, but I think a TV series would be great. It would, it would have to yeah. be... To me, I think... It would need to be like HBO or Showtime or someone because it is an edgy series. It, it is. It's and you know and it, given the sort of anthology nature, you know, of the of the series, it would it would be better told in series television than trying to do a one like a one shot movie about it. Yeah, I agree. Although I think the the first book of the new line they did, where they have the reality TV show and everything, mm-hmm. if, yeah. if they were going to do one, that would probably be the best one to do. It's a movie. It'd be a pretty good choice. It would be a pretty good choice. Um, and um, we've been in the process of the past, you know, uh, since the beginning of this year of detailing a lot of the characters from the new books in our biweekly PDF series called Scare Sheets, where we've been basically doing one character uh, in each profile. I found it interesting, your approach with the PDFs. I, I really like the idea that you come up with these a few pages at a time mm-hmm. Uh, and maybe they're 99 cents or so in PDFs each, and then some yeah. of them you collect together and release as a book. I think, yep. it's, I think it's a really clever idea. I mean, has that been working well for, for the company? Very well. Very yeah, well. I think very well. Yeah, people have been pretty pleased with it, both inside the company, and uh, I think the fans have liked it. I, there, you know, Obviously, there's going to be some people who don't like that, because, and I understand it, um, because they don't like picking up something on a weekly basis and then have us collect it and release it as a book because the, you know, it, I, I can understand feeling like, Oh, this is, you know, I have this, why do I have to pay for it again? Which is one of the reasons why Steve and I try really hard to add something to the collected book to make it worthwhile. Mm-hmm. To give it some added value. <clears throat> yeah. And, and we even, uh, we also specifically discount the book, uh, the PDF initially, when we release it as a collected book. Uh, so for the, what was the first one? Threat Report. Threat Report, um, yep. We had a, a, I don't know how many pages it is, 100 and something, 200 and something. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's, uh, we sold it for the first week as a PDF for only $10. And there were 10 new characters. So it was as if you were just buying these 10 characters. 
Right. Um, and that actually worked really, really well. And we, we tried to repeat the same thing with the, the Power, um, Profiles. Yeah. Power Profiles book, which is collected as of a couple of weeks ago or, you know, a month or two ago. Mm-hmm. And uh, the book will be out at Gen Con. But, yeah, we had that on sale, too, for I think it was twelve fifty for the first week or so. Yeah. And then and so that just allowed people to kind of, you know, pick that up, have everything collected in one place. And there's a little extra content in there. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Now, also, uh, congratulations on your successful Kickstarter a few months yes, ago. Congratulations. Oh, on yeah. That. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, for the Deluxe Heroes Handbook. I really like the reward category. I think it was a $200 one. I might be mistaken, though, uh, where they you would print superhero characters made by the backers. Yeah, that was so cool. Yeah, the, the first the appearance. First appearance. Yeah. We just got those posted last week or the week before. I'm not sure. Uh, yeah, uh, over the course of like the previous week. Yeah. Yeah, and it was, it was 10 characters from the 10 backers, and uh, they turned out really pretty cool. Yep. That's cool. Uh, did you enjoy the experience with Kickstarter? You think that's a good, good method for indie game RPG uh, creators? Yeah, it, absolutely. Yeah, it's a tremendous resource. You know, it's it's interesting to see how the different elements of Kickstarter culture are sort of resolving themselves uh, as as it grows in popularity. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting. We've seen. Uh, you know, we had the advantage when we we did the the Kickstarter for uh, the Deluxe Heroes Handbook of having seen a number of them already, and you know, having a lot of colleagues who had you know were willing to give us plenty of advice, you know, about their own experiences. You know, because it it's it seems like it's pretty easy given the the tremendous enthusiasm that Kickstarter engenders to to get yourself in a lot of trouble if you're not careful. <laughs> Yeah, and it seems like uh, RPGs are doing well. We interviewed Monty Cook a while back, and mm-hmm. his he had a huge success. Yeah. Um, are you going to continue using Kickstarter? You think? Any? I as we I think it's as as is appropriate for the project. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think that for for a company like Green Ronin, you know, the big advantage of something like Kickstarter is that it handle just like the name says, it handles a lot of the upfront costs mm-hmm. of a project. You know the, the the big difficulty of producing uh, a lot of RPG books is there is their production cost. You know they're they're usually these days, you know, color glossy books with a lot of art. You know, often hardcovers, and you have to print you know a fair number of them. You know, so that tends to be a big initial outlay. You know, in order to make that happen. Yeah, it's and, not cheap. No, it's not. And for, for, you know, even a medium-sized company, just having that, you know, initial shot of cash uh, from, from a Kickstarter can, can help get a project, you know, to the printer and into distribution a little faster than it might otherwise. Do you have any advice for those who might be interested in using Kickstarters themselves? And was there anything that maybe you learned the hard way you could share the wisdom wisdom points <laughs> it's awareness now not awareness. wisdom yes yeah, awareness oh. um, I, I think um i think some of the things we kind of walked into kickstarter doing uh, was we, we definitely recognized right off the bat that we didn't want to do a lot of crazy stretch goals mm-hmm. um because i think a lot of kickstarter projects get into trouble 
when they start chasing the dollars and don't recognize how much work goes into the things that they're adding on as, as stretch goals. Right. And those, all those things take extra time. So we did very achievable stretch goals that, I mean, achievable in terms of what we could do internally at Green Renine. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, and be able to get them done in a relatively quick fashion and still release the book in some semblance of on time. And I mean, you'll see with things like, well, even like the, the big Shadowrun Returns computer game that just came out mm-hmm. in the last week or two, there's still, despite the fact that it was supposed to all release at once, at least when they first were doing the Kickstarter, you know, now the, the, the big add-on for their setting of, uh, what is it in Germany? The Berlin setting. Yeah. Yeah, uh, the Berlin storyline isn't going to be out until October, and uh, and I am in no way ripping on the people involved with that because I'm I'm good friends with a lot of them. But it's that sort of thing where yes, it's awesome and it's fantastic and it's really cool. But there are behind the scene costs that money doesn't necessarily make up for if you don't get lots and lots and lots and lots of it. Oh, yeah. Um, so that that would be one thing I'd say to just be careful of if you're doing a Kickstarter is have a really good sense of what you're oh. capable of getting done. Be as yeah. far along in the actual creation of it as possible, given whatever limited resources you have before you get started. Um, and certainly for something like a role-playing game, that could be all the words that are needed written. Um, right. But you might need to get use some of the money to, to get art done and that sort of thing. So it's uh, it, it, Kickstarter is really interesting, and it's certainly still kind of mutating over time for people as uh, you know, companies like Pinnacle use it for projects that initially they did uh, they did a Kickstarter for Deadlands Noir, which was literally a, hey, one of our guys came to us with this idea. We're not really sure it's going to sell, so we th- we'll do it at a Kickstarter, and it turned out to do you know over a hundred thousand oh, wow. dollars for them. Yeah, yeah, and now they're doing a Kickstarter for Weird Wars Rome, which. Yeah, which they said, we're taking a different approach with this, which is, we have it done, and if you guys kickstart it at this level, you'll get the book. If you keep going, we'll continue to support the line with... It'll become these, a game line. Yeah. yeah, it'll be there'll be more and more stuff, and they're basically using it kind of partially as marketing and partially to just find out if there's interest and they're not doing crazy stretch goals. They're just saying, this is what you'll get and everything's basically done. Yeah. Game mechanics wise for Eminem, one of the big changes from third edition to second edition was the addition to of like combat skills and then the also mm-hmm. increased cost of skills. I yeah. was wondering what the thought behind that was. Basically what ended up happening there was uh, a lot of consolidation. We went through the the process of reorganizing some of the uh, abilities and looking at the different categories of things, uh, particularly uh, you know organizing ability scores where we could we could change a few things around. And one of the sort of oddball elements of second edition was the the um, attack bonus. Which was essentially it sort of a it was sort of a pseudo ability. It was not really a skill. It was sort of enhanced by advantages, uh, what were called feats in second edition. But you know, it was sort of this weird corner case um, that didn't really fit anywhere. And so, for consistency, you know, in the in the new edition, 
um, because amongst other things, we wanted to have combat skills. We decided that we would split the attack and defense bonuses up for combat purposes, assign some of their qualities to abilities, and then build off advantages and skills that, you know, reflected that appropriately. At the same time, we consolidated a number of skills from second edition. There was very little need to have climb as a separate skill, <laughs> for example. Holds breath. Or <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, swimming, you know, yeah. largely amounted to that. You know, I think they was, should break it up. There should be a diving skill, holding right. breath skill. Treading water skill. Exactly. Yep. You know, and you have to have, you know, different, you know, specialties for the different, you know, for the backstroke. and for Yeah, you could get in some real trouble if you could only backstroke and like tread water, right. but you can't hold your breath. I know. Um, These things can happen. <laughs> so it, it pretty much came down to the fact because we, we, cons- we condensed the skill list, we made skills slightly more expensive because each, each individual skill tended to do more and it tended to be a little broader. I thought it was interesting how you, and that created the fighting uh, ability score. Yep. Which reminded yeah, me, remind me of face rip a little bit. <laughs> yeah, and it was, there was definitely some inspiration, you know, from, from that yeah, as well as other superhero games. And yeah, we basically ended up splitting the attack bonus between fighting and dexterity. And we split the, de- the defense bonus between fighting and agility. And, you know, it spread things out a little bit more. Uh, so that you could have those things sort of baked in to the ability scores, uh, but not so concentrated that, you know, there was one uber combat ability score uh, that made you, you know, one thing that made you awesome at all forms of combat. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, as we start to wrap things up, you're obviously all gamers. I was wondering what you guys are playing right now. Yeah. Not right, the, not right the second on the phone. <laughs> As we speak. Honestly, I thought I heard some, some rolling I, I dice. Thought, I thought I heard dice, yeah, but no. <laughs> John, you want to go first? Oh, yeah. I'm uh, Sorry, I thought you were going to jump in, Steve. Nope, uh, I'm actually currently playing in a Pathfinder game, which I, I, I will say I have never played Pathfinder before about a month or two ago, but that's discounting all of the third and 3.5 edition right. D&D that I played back in the day. But yeah, I just recently started playing in a Pathfinder game, and we're playing in a kickstarted adventure path, which was the Way of the Wicked. So we're playing bad guys, oh, uh, and I have, and by bad guys I mean lawful evil dudes who are trying to take down a nation of goody two shoes. So you're, uh, basically, you're playing D and D characters. Yeah. Yes, yes. <laughs> but it, but the conceit is from the beginning you are playing evil characters. <laughs> It doesn't just turn um, out that way. It just doesn't turn out that way. Exactly. <laughs> um, and then let's see. We we did have a bunch of different stuff going on, but I am now actually going to be moving down to San Jose from Seattle for a couple of months. So my gaming will probably stop for a little while. Although I, I think I may still play in that Pathfinder game on on Thursday nights via Skype or something. Mm. Yeah, yeah. More and more people I've talked to are doing that. Google Google Hangouts or, or Skype. Yep. Yeah, and we also had uh, we, we kind of alternate things on in that Thursday game where we've got one main game going on, and then we did a really short Fate Freeport thing because we're doing a Freeport booklet for 
for Green Renine and uh, Chris, Chris Premis is one of the people in that Thursday night game. Mm-hmm. And uh, we were doing uh, an adventure Conqueror King. We were talking about doing Gamma World, but now I was the one who was going to run that and I'm leaving. So that's not going to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, so we, we do a bunch of different stuff. Yeah. My game group just recently wrapped up running a D&D Next playtest uh, for a while uh, that we had been doing. And we decided to take a break from that. And a friend of mine had a yen to run Shadowrun again. Which what edition? We're playing 4th edition, actually, because we started before 5th came out. Mm. And now the, the great debate that everybody's waiting around. We're, we're all waiting for, for our game master to read 5th edition and pr- issue a pronouncement <laughs> as to whether or not you know, it will be suitable for us to shift to fifth edition or just keep playing with fourth um uh it's actually been a lot of fun so shadowrun was a a game i i played the hell out of um back in the early 90s so it's it's been uh it's been a blast revisiting it that's great so now when your game master makes a pronouncement does he or she have to start it with hear ye hear ye hear ye because that just sounds like that should be something they do yeah, doesn't have to, but he, prob- <laughs> he probably would. Give <laughs> well, it's been great uh, talking to you guys. Yes, um, it has been. Thank you so much. Before we, go, before we go. Yes. We do like to have shameless plug time where you can tell everyone where they can find all your green Ronin and the game and where to find all your all your stuff that they could possibly find online, where the heck they can get to it. Absolutely. The easiest spot is certainly greenronin.com. And that's, that's, just and that's spelled green, like the color, and then R-O-N-I-N, yep. right? Yep, okay. exactly. All one word, greenronin.com. Yep. And we also have mutantsandmasterminds.com, all spelled out, no spaces, for you know all things mutants and masterminds. And what's... What's coming up? We've we've got our, our weekly trade-offs between gadget guides and um, scare sheets, mm-hmm. and then power profiles is uh, out in PDF and is is the book is shipping soon, is imminent. Then um, Emerald Deluxe City's Heroes handbook is also coming out very shortly. Yeah, Deluxe Heroes handbook is also um, shipping soon, and then Emerald City's up next, right? And then after that is the Cosmic Handbook, so it's a uh, it's a full full slate. Yeah, definitely. Very cool. Um, there's some definitely some cool stuff coming up. We're we're very I'm very proud of of Emerald City uh, and how it came out. It's going to be a very cool uh, new addition to the the setting. Folks have gotten we we forget because we work in editorial time that you know folks have really only gotten have gotten glimpses of Emerald city and a lot of the stuff we've done so far. And this is kind of it, you know, where you get to get to see the whole thing laid out for you. And it's, it's pretty cool. Oh, excellent. Yeah, no, that reminds me, sorry, one more question. Cause as you were talking about that, reminded me of a question I missed. Um, or wanted to ask, there were two books or there's one, especially one book I really liked from second edition. I was wondering if there's any plans to make a version like it. And and now I can't remember the name. It's it's Wizards and Warlocks. No, it's something like that. Warriors, well, yeah, Warriors, Warriors and Warlocks. Okay. Yeah. Is there any I, any plans to do something like that? Do you want to be happy or do you want to be sad? <laughs> oh, good lord. Oh. 
Okay, I'm the one that's got to deal with them when you're done. <laughs> um, yeah, then absolutely. We're going to have that coming up soon. Oh, I'm sorry, honey. Okay. <laughs> uh, no, we actually, uh, we don't have absolutely formal plans for the next year, although I think Steve and I both know exactly what we are hoping will be yes. coming up with next year. Uh, and we've already started working towards some of that. But yeah, Warriors and Warlocks is not on that list, unfortunately. Oh. But that doesn't mean it won't be on a future list. I was like, could you, you at least put it on like the bottom of the list so it'll work its way up? Or... <laughs> Total list yes. somewhere potentially happening. Do you have like a, 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 a supplemental list? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, we'll get it on there. Don't worry. <laughs> Thank you. Now you're just humoring me. Gosh. <laughs> I don't care. If it works, I'm good. <laughs> All right. Well, it's been great talking to you guys. You guys have a great evening. Awesome. You Bye. too. Thank and you. Thanks a lot, guys. Everybody, this is Jordan Gibson. I play Dark Star on Super Knocked Up the Web Series, and you're listening to Genre Tainment. <laughs> well, special thanks to Green Ronin for setting up this interview with the designers of one of our favorite games, and we wish them luck with their new books and that Marvel yeah. game, Crossing Fingers. <laughs> now let's get to our bonus interview with Eric Balfour, who gives us some teasing for what to expect in season four of Haven. So what new developments for Duke are you most excited about this year? What new developments am I most excited for? I think, I think, uh, oh God, how do you, how do you answer that without giving anything away? <laughs> you know, I think what I'm most excited about for Duke this season um, is, you know, through, he is going to, to be pushed harder than ever towards a decision. Um, and he is going to be forced to choose sides in a battle that, uh, are, are, are almost, uh, Shakespearean in nature. I mean, they, they, they are, uh, they're impossible. They're impossible choices to make. And so watching that journey has been really exciting this season. There, there are two really huge changes that Duke is going to make this season. Um, and unfortunately, I can't actually say what they are. Um, it would be giving away too much. But I will tell you that um, it's going to leave fans either really happy or really frustrated. Um, you know, Duke is going to have to completely um, redefine himself in many ways. And that, uh, that uh, 
rebooting of sorts or redefining of, of his entire life um, is really going to to affect who he is. And 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 naturally thinking about it, I don't know that it's going to ch- change who he is. I think we know who Duke is now. I think we we understand who Duke is in his heart, but it is going to change his place in this world and and his his choices in his life. So that really, to me, is going to be um, what fans are going to be most excited about. Duke is, in some ways, it's why I love playing the character, because he is completely human, and he is fallible. And in that human quality, it's very difficult to, to simply say he is good or he is bad or he has, you know, decided to be good. He is the most, uh, in some ways, the most honest character on the show. And that's not to say that he doesn't, you know, ever lie or isn't ever deceitful, and, and, and he, he certainly can be. But what I mean by that is he's the most honest as a, as a, as a, as a being, as a character, because it's never that simple for him, you know? And he's not written to be um, sort of a, a uh, caricature of the earnest hero. Um, he's, he's, he's just more dynamic than that. And so his choices are always veiled with, you know, um, his own, at times, selfish desires, with his, um, what I believe is his inherent nature um, to do the right thing. Um, so I think in some ways his desire um, to, to be more earnest may be there, but because of the challenges that he faces this season, it becomes that much harder. I think um, one of the things that the audience is going to get to see this year and understand is how deep the connection and bond is between Duke and Audrey. Um, Now, that may be construed in a way that people don't understand or or have a different interpretation of, but if the the audience is paying attention this year, you're going to see some things that really start to indicate how well Duke really does know Audrey. And that's going to have an effect on Audrey. Um, and it's, uh, it's, it's actually one of the more exciting things that's going to start to reveal itself over the course of the season. Okay, great. Thank you. Hi, my name is David Peterson. I'm the creator of the Dothraki language for HBO's Game of Thrones and the alien language and culture consultant for Sci-Fi's Defiance, and you're listening to Genretainment. Well, thanks to the Sci-Fi channel for giving us a chance to speak with Eric, and we look forward to watching new episodes of Haven. The show's really matured into one of our favorites over the years. Yeah, I think we've gotten a little hooked on it now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Especially after the cliffhanger of last season. I know. I don't know what are going to do now. Well, that's it for today's Genretainment. We'll be back soon with all new guests from our favorite films, TV shows, novels, and web series. 
Coming up in future episodes, we have director John Badham joining us to discuss his new book, John Badham on Directing. He directed classic films like War Games, Short Circuit, Saturday Night Fever, and more. Click on over to our website at genretainment.com or our Facebook page and send in a question for Mr. Badham. And don't forget, you can check out our archived episodes at genretainment.com. Just click on the podcast tab, and you can also find all of the great shows in Sci-Fi Pulse Radio over at sci-fipulseradio.com. Until Until next next time. time.